The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. I look at this book, and though the form will pass, the word of the Lord will endure forever. When men work around a uranium pile, they must be shielded to protect themselves against the radioactivity of the disintegrating element. And when men touch the Bible, the word of God, they may be sheltered by the blood of Christ from the judgments that shall come from this book, and they may be made alive by the radiating force that comes from it. It has no half-life like a disintegrating element, but will stand forever, revealing the heart and the ways of God. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the radio outreach which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we'll be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Obedience from the Heart. If you try to shape jello with your bare hands, you will make a mess. But if you pour it into a mold and put it into the refrigerator, it will come out exactly the way you want it. When we live according to our own wisdom or desires, we make a mess of our lives. But the Bible creates a mold into which we pour our lives so that we can be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Are you allowing God to shape you into what He wants you to be? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Obedience from the Heart. Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thyself and that thou hast revealed thyself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the written word. May we listen for thy voice and be brought by thy spirit to the place of obedience, to the mold of truth to which we have been delivered, in order that we may become more like our Lord and that men shall see him in us and be drawn to him. We ask that each heart may be blessed in this hour by the Holy Spirit of truth. And all that we ask is in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our study today is in the sixth chapter of Romans, the 17th verse. Ye have obeyed from the heart. The teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether spoken by his lips in the days of his flesh or given to us through his followers by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a hard mold of truth into which we are to be melted and poured in order that we may be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. This standard of doctrine, this system of truth, this mold of teaching had been established by God himself, and the believers were delivered over to it. They had obeyed it from the heart. The great fact 
of heart obedience is of such vast importance that it needs special attention and study. We are to obey from the heart, our text tells us. We are to obey from the heart the mold of teaching to which we have been committed. Again, I quote from McLaren, who has expressed so beautifully the nature of the truth of Christ as our mold and pattern. It is no use having a mold and metal unless you have a fire. It is no use having a perfect pattern unless you have a motive to copy it. Men do not go to the devil for want of examples, and morality is not at a low ebb by reason of ignorance of what the true type of life is. But nowhere but in the full-orbed teaching of the New Testament will you find a motive strong enough to melt down all the obstinate hardness of that iron of the human will and to make it plastic to his hand. If we can say he loved me and gave himself for me, then the sum of all morality, the old commandment that ye love one another, receives a new stringency and a fresh motive, as well as a deepened interpretation, when his love is our pattern. The one thing that will make men willing to be like Christ is their faith that Christ is their sacrifice and their savior. And sure I am of this, that no form of mutilated Christianity which leaves out or falteringly proclaims the truth that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world will ever generate heat enough to mold men's wills or kindle motives powerful enough to lead to a life of growing imitation of and resemblance to him. The dial may be all right, the hours most accurately marked in their proper place, every minute registered on the circle, the hands may be all right, delicately fashioned, truly poised, but if there is no mainspring inside, dial and hands are of little use, and a Christianity which says Christ is the teacher, do you obey him, is as impotent as the dial face of a clock with the broken mainspring. What we need and what, thank God, is the teaching that we have is the pattern brought near to us and the motive for imitating the pattern set in motion by the great thought, he loved me and gave himself for me. Still further, the teaching is a power to fashion life, inasmuch as it brings with it a gift which secures the transformation of the believer into the likeness of his Lord. Part of the teaching is the fact of Pentecost. Part of the teaching is the fact of the ascension. And the consequence of the ascension and the sure promise of the Pentecost is that all who love him and wait upon him shall receive into their hearts the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, which shall make them free from the law of sin and death. So, dear friends, on the one hand, let us remember that our religion is meant to work, that we have nothing in our creed that should not be in our character that all of our credenda are to be our agenda. Everything that is believed is to be something done. And that if we content ourselves with the simple acceptance of the teaching and make no effort to translate that teaching into life, we are hypocrites or self-deceivers. And on the other hand, do not let us forget that religion is the soul of which morality is the body and that it is impossible in the nature of things that you shall ever get a true, lofty, moral life which is not based on religion. I do not say that men cannot be sure of the outlines of their duty without Christianity, 
though I'm free to confess that I think it is a very maimed and shabby version of human duty, which is supplied minus the special revelation of that duty which Christianity makes. But my point is that the knowledge will not work without the gospel. The true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who were in Rome in those early days, before any of the leaders of the young church had reached the metropolis, these had known the touch of that form of doctrine to which they were handed over. It had been something which had called out their utmost for him. In fact, whenever there is the true life of God within the individual, that life must act. We read in Corinthians, the love of Christ constraineth us. It must. How is it possible for us to look upon the cross of Jesus Christ, to understand that it was for us, to believe it, and then not be moved by all that it stands for? This had happened in Rome, and it had produced its result. The young believers had obeyed the gospel from their hearts. Now, there's a real distinction between mere obedience and obedience from the heart. A soldier may go through the manual of arms, obeying every command of the corporal and bringing his rifle to parade rest with all the others in the squad. But if his heart is not in what he is doing, he'll be at best a slovenly soldier. If he has the opportunity, he will malinger, skulking in the hospital tent when he should be on active duty. There are very probably some professing believers who live this type of life and who cannot be counted upon in the moments of real need. There are other soldiers who are eager, active, ready, desiring to be good soldiers. They know that there's a job to be done, and they go out to do it. Of such was the church to which Paul was writing this epistle. It was the highest of many types of obedience. The Lord Jesus Christ, in his, one of his parables, described a father with two sons. He told them to perform a certain duty. One son replied, I go but he did not go. The other said, I will not go, but finally he did go. Now the Lord asked which of these two had really done the father's will. The answer, of course, was that the truly obedient son was the one who actually performed the command which had been given by his father, going out to the vineyard and doing the work which he had been asked to do. But we must understand that this parable describes only two types of conduct and that there is a third which is even better. For just as a change of heart that leads to obedience is better than actual disobedience, so a willing obedience is best of all. How much better if the Lord had been able to say, there was a man who had a son and he said to him, go work in my vineyard. And the son answered and said, I go. And immediately he went and did all that he had been told to do. Now there was some of this quality of obedience in these believers in that early church. Let us look at some of the contrasts between the disobedience of the unbeliever and the obedience of the believer. First, there is a command of God concerning trust in man. We read in the second chapter of Isaiah, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils. But the unbeliever disobeys this command and clings to some hope of salvation by what man can do for himself. This is possibly the most salient characteristic of unregenerate man, his great desire to trust in himself, to trust in his works for salvation, to trust in his human philosophies, to trust in his interpretation of the facts of nature, to trust in the powers of his own reasoning, 
to trust his own human theology. The man whose trust is leaning on himself or upon anything that comes from himself is the thoroughly disobedient one. He is in the flesh. And we read in Romans 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. On the other hand, the child of God who obeys from the heart the form of teaching to which he has been delivered shows that obedience by turning away from the things which rise out of himself. He has learned that to obey God, he must turn away from himself. He has abandoned all hope of salvation through his own character, and he has come to obey God's word. He turns away from human philosophies, since by the Holy Spirit, he understands them better than any philosopher ever can. He accepts the revelation of God concerning the order of the creation. He knows the true theology is a divine revelation. And above all, he obeys God's command to abandon confidence in his own common sense and to put all of his trust in the eternal word. Listen to the command. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own common sense. The word means skill, intelligence, understanding. Do not have confidence in it, says the Lord. The unbelieving child of disobedience trusts his own understanding. The believing child turns away from it in order to trust the Lord alone. Then secondly, the difference between disobedience and obedience is marked in the individual's attitude toward sin. On Mars Hill, the tone of the Christian message was sounded by Paul in his great address to the intellectual world of his day. God now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. This is what Paul stated on Mars Hill in Acts 17. Yet in face of this command, the children of disobedience continue in their sins, unrepentant, and treasure up for themselves the stores of wrath which must one day fall upon the disobedient. The believer, on the contrary, who has obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which he has been delivered, having received new life in Christ, manifests that life by turning away from sin. It may startle some people to have it put as I am about to state it, but a very close reading of the word of God will reveal, I am sure, that no unsaved man ever has repented and that no unsaved man can repent. For true repentance is godly sorrow, and an ungodly person cannot have a godly sorrow. But the child of God, in whom the Lord plants life in regeneration, he will have repentance as one of the first fruits of the new obedience. If you look back into your own Christian experience, I'm sure you'll realize that your own repentance came after you had been born again and that as you go on living the Christian life, your repentance will continue in the measure that you draw close to the Lord. Then third, the difference between disobedience and obedience is most strongly marked by the individual's attitude toward the Lord Jesus Christ. God manifested his son as the savior of the world. He was the creator and came into his creation only to be rejected by it. We will not have this man to reign over us, they cried, this people to whom he came bringing the offer of salvation. He was forced to say of them, he was in the world, 
and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He was the light of the world, but when he shone in the world's darkness, not one of his creatures looked up. This was the greatest proof of their blindness. The world would not have taken any notice of Christ at all if God had not sent John the Baptist before him to bear witness to the light. If it is necessary to tell a man that light has been turned on, there is proof that his eyes are blinded. And this disobedience continued to the point where the people cried, Crucify him! Crucify him! But on the other hand, those who have obeyed the form of doctrine to which they were delivered have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as being what he claimed to be. Anything short of this is to make a mockery of faith. For how can a man call himself a follower of Christ if at the outset he rejects Christ's own claim concerning himself? And the Lord Jesus, beyond any question, claimed to be God. He did not stop with a claim to be the Son of God if that is to be interpreted as being anything less than God the Father. For he said, I and the Father are one. He did not mean that they were one in purpose merely or one in spirit. Those things are true, of course. But he claimed to be one with the Father in their essential being. He said in the 14th of John, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And we must recognize clearly that the men of his day understood this correctly, for they picked up stones to stone him. And when they were asked for which of his works he was being stoned, they replied that it was not because of his works, but that he, being a man, as they thought, made himself God. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ claimed to be God. That claim is true or false. Those who do not obey the form of doctrine to which mankind has been delivered count the claim as being false. They therefore take the position that Christ made a false claim. Now, if that be true, then Jesus knew that the claim was false or he did not know that it was false. If Christ made such a claim and knew it was false, then he was a religious racketeer. If, on the other hand, he made such a claim to be God and did not know it, that it was false, then he was insane. There is no other alternative possible. You can readily see, then, that every unbeliever must take the attitude, if he rejects Christ's claim to be God, that Christ is either lying or that Christ was insane. There is no other alternative. You may say, well, I, I'm quite different. I, I don't follow him all the way, but in my mind, I believe. Yes, but our text says that they believe from the heart. And how great your condemnation if in your mind you come to the place where you acknowledge Jesus Christ to be God and say, surely this man was the Son of God, and then do not submit yourself to him. But the believer who has obeyed the form of doctrine to which he has been delivered, who believes from the heart, he turns away from such preposterous conclusions and with Thomas falls to his knees crying, My Lord and my God. This is the inevitable attitude of the true Christian believer. He has no other God than the Lord Jesus Christ. And in saying that, he includes a full belief in the Father and in the Holy Spirit. Then finally, in addition to these marked differences in the attitude toward self, toward sin, and toward the Lord Jesus Christ, there is the great difference in attitude towards the Word of God. 
those who have not obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which they have been delivered take one of several negative attitudes toward the Bible. One group, like the atheists and other non-Christians or anti-Christians, reject it entirely. Another group, within the borders of Christendom, dilutes the word of God by accepting some religious tradition which either waters down the word or denies it altogether. Still another group takes the attitude that the Bible is a human document containing the record of man's religious thinking, of man groping after God. For such, the Bible may contain the word of God, but it may also contain myth, folklore, and legend. For such, the Bible can have no authority except in the parts which have been elevated by the subjective human reason of the individual to be ultimate truth. While still other groups pay loud lip service to the Bible, but they deny it by accepting some other religious book as supplementary and complementary. But the born-again believer, far different from any of these groups, is marked by our text as being the individual has, who has obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which he has been delivered. He knows that the word of God is the supreme court from which there can be no appeal. He knows that the word of God is indeed the very word of God. He knows that the Bible is not man groping after God, but God revealing himself to man in the terms in which he wished to reveal himself to man. He does not look in the Bible for a God created in the image of man, but rather sees the Bible as the speaking mouth of God, showing the abundance of his heart, his heart of justice, of holiness, and of grace. I'm about to make a statement about the Bible and my attitude toward it that will cause some liberals to shake their heads and think that I have made a God out of the Bible. But if my thought is fully understood, there will be no difficulty. There is a sense in which I, in seeking to obey from the heart the form of doctrine to which I have been delivered, have come to the place where I find this book to be not the path, but the goal. I find this book to be the very heart of God. Oh, as I bow my knees before the Bible, as I so often put it upon a chair and kneel before it, praying and reading, I am not to be looked upon as holding a fetish, but rather as I bow my knees before this book. The leather is gone, the paper is gone, the ink is gone, and what is left is God himself. In a world of injustice, there is no way, no way, to know the justice of God except through this book. In a world of hatred, there is no way, no way, of knowing the love of God except through this book. When men work around a uranium pile, they must be shielded to protect themselves against the radioactivity of the disintegrating element. And when men touch the Bible, the word of God, they may be sheltered by the blood of Christ from the judgments that shall come from this book, and they may be made alive by the radiating force that comes from it. It has no half-life like a disintegrating element but will stand forever, revealing the heart and the ways of God. I look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, and know that they shall pass. I look at the earth around me, and I know that it shall pass. I look at this book, and though the form will pass, 
the word of the Lord will endure forever. The word of the Lord shall never pass away. And it is to this that we have been delivered. And it is this that we must obey from the heart. And we pray thee, our God and Father, that the Holy Spirit shall draw us closer to this book, that there may be those who listen in this hour who shall determine to go back to the word, to read it afresh, to submit themselves to it, to obey its commandments, to find in it thy presence and thy redemption. Speak to each heart in this day, and if there be any who yet reject, who have listened to this, our Father, we pray thee that thou will give them restlessness until they rest in Christ. But upon thine own who have truly believed in thee, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide and a new sense of our obedience from the heart to the form of doctrine to which we have been submitted. And unto thee be the glory and the majesty, the dominion and the power, now and until our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen. God has made known his wisdom and will for our lives in his word. As the Holy Spirit teaches God's truth to us, we must rely on him to lead us to obedience from the heart. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse entitled, Obedience from the Heart. Now you can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Obedience from the Heart, or simply request message number R6-37. We'd also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled, The Gospel We Like to Hear. The Bible warns us against following teachers who will tickle our ears with false doctrines that appeal to our fleshly nature. This free booklet clearly sets forth the true biblical gospel and sounds a warning against ear-tickling, people-pleasing distortions of the good news, including the false religions of signs and wonders, salvation without lordship, and the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Ask for your free copy of The Gospel We Like to Hear when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible comes to you through the generous gifts of our listeners. If you have benefited from the broadcast and would like it to continue, please prayerfully consider a donation to help us keep this ministry on the air. For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Call toll-free 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free updated resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, daily devotionals, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians, including Donald Gray Barnhouse, James Montgomery Boyce, Michael Horton, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
Then join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.